I'm Julia Gillard and this is a podcast of one's own. Presently, I'm in the UK, which is emerging from another wave of COVID-19. To try and bring the infection rate down, there have been strict stay-at-home orders in force. And whilst things are starting to get better, for a long period of time, people have been told to stay home unless they need to shop for necessities or attend medical appointments or their essential workers. Schools and universities are closed, so are pubs. Mask wearing is required when shopping, using public transport and other similar types of activities. Now, many of these rules would sound devastatingly familiar to our Australian listeners, especially those from Melbourne who lived through their own lengthy lockdown. In London, the Metropolitan Police are the force responsible for the incredibly complex task of enforcing lockdown measures and keeping Londoners safe every day. At the helm is my guest, the first woman to ever hold the role of Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Dame Cressida Dick. Cress, thank you for joining me during what I imagine is an incredibly busy time for you. For my Aussie listeners who are less familiar with the Met, can you describe the size and the role of the police force you command? Thank you very much for asking me to be here. Yeah, the Met is nearly 200 years old and we police London. So that's heading for 10 million residents. And of course, in normal times, lots of visitors, commuters and international tourists. We also have the national lead for counter-terrorism policing and we protect Her Majesty the Queen and Parliament and diplomatic premises because, of course, this is a capital city. We have about 44,000 people, of whom 32,000 and a bit are police officers and a budget of over £3 billion. It makes us quite a big organisation and quite a big police service. I think I'm right in saying that New South Wales, which is very large in Australia, would be about 18,000 police officers. However, of course, we have a much smaller scale. We don't have the great big rural areas. We're confined mainly, although we had some national and international duties, we're confined mainly to our city. Well, I'm going to ask you about what led you here to that tremendous responsibility. To start at the very beginning, you grew up in Oxford, the youngest of three children with parents who were both distinguished academics. Now, I think everybody's got an impression of Oxford, even if they've never visited. Many would be familiar with its streets and buildings from watching everything from Harry Potter to police shows like Endeavour, Morse and Lewis. Can you tell us what it was like for you growing up there in the 1960s and 1970s? And in real life, is it really full of wizards and serial killers? (laughs) Sadly, I didn't see many wizards. And I'm glad to say, no, unlike in Morse, where there seems to be a murderer in every street corner, it's a very peaceful city overall. I had a lovely childhood. I was very kind of outdoorsy and active. I remember it as a very kind of free childhood, really. I was allowed to to get outside and play and ride my bike around the city and well beyond from quite an early age. I was very happy in the main and had lots of good friends, many of whom are still my friends to this day. And in that growing up, when did you first say to yourself, gee, boys and girls get treated differently? When did that penny first drop? Do you know, I actually don't know, Julia. I can't remember an exact time. I was quite unusual in some respects, I think, because one of my first schools was actually almost all boys. 
but they seemed to treat the girls and the boys almost the same. So we played rugby with the boys and soccer, football and, and hockey and whatnot. We were educated together, obviously. And my mother really thought, which I think was relatively unusual. She was, I suppose, a bit of a pioneer herself in the academic world. There weren't that many women at that time. And certainly they definitely weren't always taken as seriously as the men. She just thought that we should all be treated pretty much the same. And I always, looking back, I now realize I always felt I could do anything that my brother did. I was encouraged to be what I wanted to be and do whatever I wanted to do. And I don't remember people saying you can't because you're a girl ever. I'm going to have to ask you now, did you blitz it on the rugby field? (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't too bad as a fly half. I still like watching it now. It wasn't very good. Terrific. When you were young, you actually lost your father. When you were very young, in fact, you were only 11. And in my book on women and leadership, which I co-authored with my great friend Ngozi, we interviewed a series of women leaders and both Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the first woman to be president of Liberia, and Christine Lagarde, the first woman to lead the International Monetary Fund, spoke about the profound impact on them of losing their fathers young how they wanted to achieve in his memory, how they saw their mothers lead the family through loss. Does any of that resonate with you? Yeah, I think some of it certainly does. My parents were actually divorced a little before my father died. So I had a few years where I lived primarily with my mother and brother and sister, but it would be spending all the holidays and every other weekend with my father. I think the loss of my father probably... My view is it hit my older brother and my older sister, four and four years between us, harder probably than me. But absolutely, I saw my mother, you know, we weren't terribly well off. And I saw her holding down a job and bringing us up and trying to do the best for us. And I think, Julia, I've seen some research which suggests that both boys and girls, if they lose their father young, are often go on to be very driven to high achievement. Not that I would see myself that way, but I think this is is quite common. But I do remember looking at my mom and thinking, wow, she was my mom. I loved it a bit. She gave me every good start in life and lots of confidence. I hope not arrogance. She wanted us to be humble. She wanted us to be stoical, get on with it. You know, if we went to stay with friends and there wasn't a bed to sleep on, we slept on the floor. You know, she was quite tough with us in some respects, but she... She wanted us to be who, whoever we wanted to be. She wanted us to be happy and healthy. And she was going to make darn sure that we, that we did. You ended up studying a Bachelor of Agriculture and Forest Sciences, but your first job after university was in an accounting firm. So I'm going to have to get you to explain that because for most people, it would seem a very long way from plants and trees to debits and credits to fighting crime. What made you go on that journey and why did you decide to join the police force? Well, I've always loved nature, the countryside. I studied sciences at school more than more than sort of arts subjects. And some of my great friends were farmers. And I think that's what took me to into that studying agriculture and forest sciences, which I loved. But I'd previously thought about the police service. There's a lot of public service in my family. No policing, but teaching, nursing, that kind of thing. And I'd had to think about it. And then if I'm honest, and no disrespect to any any accountants who are listening, but a lot of people of my generation were being encouraged to go into the law or into accountancy as a good sort of qualification to get. And I had a go at that. And I'm afraid it just showed me absolutely what I didn't want to do or didn't want to be. And it crystallized in my head the idea that 
you know, I wanted to be active and out on the streets. I wanted to be contributing in a way that I could kind of see a result at the end of the day. I wanted to be in a team. I wanted to make some sort of difference. I know that sounds a bit cheesy. And I wanted particularly to be surrounded by people who were different from me and, and kind of feel challenged in that way, learning about different cultures and different different lives. So policing seemed a good idea and it's treated me really well. I've, I've loved every minute of it. And what was the reaction of your family and friends? Did they think that's fantastic or were a number of them concerned about the dangers of it, the kinds of uh, situations it would bring you into contact with? I don't remember them being concerned about that at all. I think they were intrigued. I think they were a bit surprised, some of them. One or two further distant family friends, I think, were you know not terribly keen on the police and thought, why would you want to join them? But the vast majority, were, and including my close family, my mother, were really, really supportive, kind of wished me well. And as soon as I started, I think they could see that it, it made me happy. And a lot of my friends to this day from school or from college from early life will say still say to each other when we meet up you know 50th birthday parties or 60th birthday parties whatever it is you know Chris has had the best job you know so interesting and it's you know it's really suited her I'm sure they don't all mean that all of the time but people recognize that I've benefited from the privilege of the, of the work that I've been able to do and and they're they're intrigued by it my mother and my father were both police officers before we migrated to Wales in 1966. I was born in Wales in 1961, so quite a long time ago, and they both served in the police force before they married and my sister and I came along. Now, when they described their days in the police force, sometimes full of funny stories, it was clear that the roles of policemen and policewomen back then were incredibly gendered. In fact, what my mother did was much more administrative work in the police station rather than out and about on the beat. How different was it? I imagine it was hugely different, but how much had changed by the time you joined in the early 1980s? Well, firstly, brilliant to hear that your mother and father were police officers. And so common, of course, I expect, wouldn't be surprised if they met in policing. That was quite a common thing. And the story has continued. And here you are. I think it had moved a long way in that intervening, let's say, sort of 20 odd years. I joined in 1983. Just a few years before that, we'd had beginnings of the sort of equal opportunities legislation coming in. We had it used to be a separate police women's department in the Met, and I think right across the country, actually, so that there was a, a hierarchy for women that was kept very separate from the men. And the roles, as you say, tended to be more administrative or working with women and children, perhaps with sex workers, particularly that kind of thing. And there was integration in the late 70s. Not everybody approved of that, I may say, but the men and the women became completely integrated and we all joined together, trained together, were taught the same skills together. And I went out on patrol by myself in Soho in the West End of London, just like my friend, who was a guy that had trained at the same time as me. And we were asked to do exactly the same things. So to that extent, very, very different. But there were still things then that were not really open to women and many barriers that we look back on now that seem absolutely crazy, really. Women in 1983, you wouldn't be public order trained. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be trained to, to work in a, you know, a volatile public order situation, a riot, if you like. You couldn't carry a firearm. There were no women, I think, in, tr in traffic policing for some reason. There were lots of things that were, were sort of actively not 
not open. And then other things, of course, that sometimes made life difficult for a young woman setting out, you know, on their working life where people would just assume that they might not be able to do this or that. A lot of it was quite paternalistic, men wanting to protect women. I met the other day with a, a sergeant of mine. So I was starting out in Soho in 19, early 84, and he was a young sergeant and he's just retired. I had a cup of tea with him. And he told me something I didn't know, which was that in, within my first sort of four or five weeks there, the sergeant had handed out our postings where we were going to work for the next month, early, lates and nights, walking on patrol by ourselves. And he'd posted me to number nine beat, which was the kind of seediest part of Soho. And one of the senior police constables came up to him and said, I see you've posted crest to number nine beat. He said, yes. <laughs> and this guy said, well, we don't put women there because he obviously thought it was dangerous in some way. And this sergeant told me the other day that he just said, well, who's going to tell Cress? Because I'm not. <laughs> and so I did walk the number nine beat by myself. But a lot of what we were not allowed to do was out of people's feeling that it might be a bit too dangerous or that we might not be competent to do it. And it's changed massively, of course, since then. And all the roles and all the ranks have been you know, genuinely open to everybody for at least 20 years now. Not saying it's all rosy everywhere, but in that sense, it's changed. And I always say policing was just a reflection of society. If I look back and think about the accountancy firm or the fish and chip shop I worked in before, you know, sexism, racism, homophobia, was it worse in the police? No, it was what it was of the time. Of course, I think it matters more in a sense in policing. <laughs> Those things really count because of the power and impact that we can have. But we reflected broader society in, in the UK at that time. And when you walk the streets now, people would recognise you, wouldn't they? They would realise you're not just the local Bobby on a wander, that you are the head of the police. Usually, yeah. And not always. No, quite often, yes. I get a lot of people coming up very positively to say, thanks very much to your people. Can you pass on our thanks? And people in, in London like seeing their police almost entirely. <laughs> the more, the better. And I'm a kind of visible representation of the, of the wider Met. So, yeah, and, so, and of course, sometimes I get I get recognised when I'm dressed down and off duty as well. I always stop and have a chat and try and find out what people think about us and if we can improve things. You also served as you made your way up the ranks as the head of the Directorate of Diversity at the Met. What did you see then as the big challenges that still needed to be solved on diversity in the police force? I did, and it was one of the harder jobs I've ever done. I'd actually, till that stage, I'd been almost entirely operational and never never really stepped away from street operations. And I had my first job, which was about trying to you know, ch change and improve for the future. And it was at a time of some controversy. We'd just had a very important public inquiry here into the murder of, of a boy called Stephen Lawrence, a racist murder, and one in which the inquiry found the, the Met had failed in a number of different ways. And they drew some wider conclusions about our relationship with our, what we would call here, no offence to anybody anywhere else in the world, but we would call here our black communities, our communities of colour. And so there was a particular focus then on improving relationships with our, our black communities, improving representation, ensuring that we could protect people better from minority communities because they tended to be more affected by crime. And I'm sorry to say that is still true to this day. Violent crime, for example, hugely over-affects our young lads from our black communities. But at the same time, we had a government that was setting some quite challenging 
targets around sort of wider diversity issues and a lot of awareness of opportunities for women and the really strong kind of interest as well in gay pride had just arrived in London and, and was a was a big deal. You know, how do the police work with people in gay communities? So all, all the different kind of protected characteristics, as we would call them, people were saying, you know, do the police get this? Do they get this well enough? Are they able to provide an effective service to the disabled or whatever? And actually, I don't know how you feel, Julie, but I feel UK is just my personal opinion, but I think we took some giant steps forward in terms of women's equality in the 90s, particularly in the 80s, actually, as well. And in some ways, I, f- I feel that wider society slightly slowed down in the pace of change in the noughties. But we in the Met were busy trying to really catch up as society had changed quite fast around us. And we, we made some big, big strides. But the world has carried on speeding up and there's very high expectations now on a police service in the most diverse city on the planet to be able to be in touch with people from a whole range of different backgrounds and ways of living if you like and being able to provide a really effective service to them last year we had the black lives matter movement asking profound questions about policing all around the world but not least in london so there's lots more to do and there's lots more to do in our society for women's equality as well as for, you know, I've now got by far the most women we've ever had. And as I've said, they're at every role and every rank, probably got a higher proportion and certainly amongst leadership than almost any other police service in the world. And we've got some great schemes to, to, to make the Met a brilliant place for people to work, whether they're a young mom or they're a grandmother or whoever they might be. But there's more to do, undoubtedly. Can I just ask you on the question of race and diversity, how did you as a policing professional feel when you first saw the footage of George Floyd's death last year? I was sickened, really. I was I was horrified. You know, of course, I do see images of violence quite often. I see, sadly, images of, of people dying more often than your average citizen would. But that was a, a, a shocking image, I think, for anybody. And, of course, led to demonstrations right around the world. In your career, you've dealt with some incredibly tough areas, gang-related crime, terrorism, people whose ideas of policing would come from watching, you know, Line of Duty or one of the other popular shows, might see all of this as a series of dramatic moments. But how did it feel to live, you know, day after day, dealing with these areas of violence, of uh, potential huge loss. Obviously, if you're in counter-terrorism, you're aware that very bad things can happen. And tragically, in a big city like London, they occasionally do happen. Can you talk about how that feels as an individual, knowing that that kind of responsibility is on your shoulders? Yeah, I mean, I think I said in an earlier answer, I do regard my work as a real is a real privilege. I think, yes, there's responsibility, but what a privilege to to be responsible for trying to protect people and to save lives. And also, God forbid, if something terrible happens, whether it's a, a terrorist attack or another you know, major incident, a, a disaster, or indeed a homicide, of which we have not as many as most enormous cities, but too many by, by anybody's standards here, then to be part of trying to ensure that you give the best possible response to the people who are affected, that you prevent further loss of life. I do think that's both interesting and, and challenging and important, and it's a privilege. And I think I would be saying all my colleagues who've worked in those areas as well would feel this, that you desperately don't want anything bad to happen. 
and you are conscious of that a lot of the time. But occasionally, as you say, they do. And because you know they may or they have, then if something bad happens or, is, or could happen if we don't do something, then you want to be there. <laughs> I was became commissioner in 2017 and we had a number of terrorist attacks in London, as you know, and the Grenfell Tower fire. And my colleagues who'd retired were rigging me out all the time. You know, what can I do to help? I just wish I was there. So it's a great motivator and it gives you a sense of purpose and, and, and mission. And when it goes well or when you feel that you've achieved something, you know, there's a, a great sense of satisfaction. But there's no point worrying too much about it, I think. Of course, it's serious, it's important, but if you spent your life worrying <laughs> what might happen, allowing yourself to be kept awake at night by the possibilities, then you wouldn't be professional and you wouldn't be very good at your job. What was the reaction when you were announced as the incoming police commissioner in 2017? I mean, the the first woman, do you remember the reaction being a kind of you-go-girl reaction that people were seeing that as another march in the step towards gender equality? Or do you remember some scepticism about your capacities to do it, having a woman in the job? What was that like? Well, it all happened in a bit of a rush. <laughs> That's the first thing. I was interviewed in the morning and then to my amazement, actually, was announced. I was rung up at lunchtime and it was just about to break in the news anyway to be told I'd got the job. And then I was doing a news conference with the Home Secretary and the Mayor by, by four o'clock in the afternoon. And it sort of went from there. Now, obviously, I had been thinking about this process for some time and thinking my way into the job. You can't apply for something seriously like this without thinking hard about how your life might change and what would be involved. I'm sure that was the same for you when you went for your big jobs. But I hadn't particularly thought about what the public or media reaction would be. I think if I fast forward, I have been quite surprised, actually, by how many, as you said, people I might meet on the street or people coming into policing who seem to have been seem to have sort of, as it were, noticed <laughs> the fact that I'm a woman and and and, and well, some of my recruits, you know, I'll say, well, what made you think about joining the Met? And they'll say, you, and that will really take me by surprise. And then they'll say, well, before you, there wasn't a woman and that made, sort of made me think differently. So I think it has probably touched some people and inspired some people to have somebody who's just a bit different, a bit, a bit countercultural, maybe a bit against expectations. I think there was a certain amount of, as you say, go girl, out there. I'm sure there was some scepticism around, you know, that might be to do with the fact that I was a woman. I never noticed it. And I don't seek, you know, I don't look for that kind of thing. And I think life's too short to be looking for, for that. If somebody's got a problem, that's their problem, really. But everybody knew that I was coming in at a, a challenging time. You know, we just had a ghastly terrorist attack just days before I arrived, only 100 metres from where I'm sitting now, in which a number of people lost their lives, including a police officer. We had a lot of money taken out of our budgets. There was a lot to be getting on with. And I just focused on, on, on getting on with the job, really. I think my colleagues around me in the Met did as well. There's work to do here. And after you were appointed as the first woman to become a Met Police Commissioner, you came out publicly as gay. You talked publicly about that. What made you make that decision and what was that experience like? Many people would view that as an incredibly brave decision, particularly in the context of leading something like the Metropolitan Police. I mean, if I was to sum it up, it was kind of a big non-event, really. I think there was a certain amount of interest. Again, it may have pleased and inspired some people. 
and I think maybe still still does a bit. Some people who might feel a bit different who wouldn't have thought of joining the police or people who are in the police who feel, you know, don't comply with the, the kind of stereotypical norm that people have in their mind's eye, perhaps still about policing. Although I can assure you, if you came to meet my frontline teams, you'd find incredibly diverse workforce, incredibly diverse. And the fact that it was sort of not not big news and a non-event, I think was probably down to two things. One is this is a very, very modern and diverse city. There are tons and tons and tons of go people working in the Met, as there is in every other profession in and the organisation in London. And secondly, I don't think it was exactly a surprise to many people because if I actually, I'm not sure I've ever said this before in a kind of media context, if you like, but when I was working in Oxford, I had a girlfriend, everybody knew it, including the local newspaper, and nobody was that bothered then either. And that was 15 years before. So people will have seen that as a moment, but actually... For me, it wasn't a big moment, and I don't think for most of the people around me or anybody in the matter, it was a particularly big moment. I did want to talk to you about some recent events in the United Kingdom. A young woman, Sarah Everard, lost her life. She was walking home, and the person charged with her murder was a serving police officer in a what we in Australia would view as a protection officer service, but is one of the responsibilities of the Metropolitan Police. Can I ask you about when you first learned of Sarah Everard's death and how it felt for you that the accused person was a police officer? So, um, yes, I have to be slightly careful because, of course, we have a person charged and going to court, so what we would call a subjudice. But suffice to say, Sarah went missing and we had a, a, a huge operation to try to, to find her. And we had identified a suspect who was then arrested before we found that Sarah had had died. And the moment of identifying the suspect and the rest was, you know, truly, truly shocking and, and horrific for people in my service and, and for me. We were hugely focused on this investigation. Of course, there's lots of other things going on in London at the time, but we were very, very focused on trying to find this young lady alive. And to discover that the suspect was a police officer was appalling. And we subsequently discovered that Sarah had been killed. So not something that any of us in the Met had faced before, thankfully. And obviously we take protecting everybody on our streets, protecting women on our streets incredibly seriously. We pride ourselves on the service that we provide to to women and girls. We're not perfect, but we, we always are seeking to get better and you know, as professionals and to try to keep people as safe as we possibly can. And this was just awful. I do need to be careful what I say because of a court case, but you know, we are of course thoroughly uh, reviewing our, our systems, our processes, are looking hard at ourselves, as any profession would. We've had, you know, doctors being arrested for the most terrible offences in this country. We've had, you know, priests. We've had any proper profession will look inside itself and say, you know, right, what happened here? And, you know, how do we make sure that we have the highest professional standards in the future? Women reacted to the loss of Sarah 
as you would imagine, you know, women around the country, uh, around the world were discussing it, talking about violence against women. And I think, you know, every woman could identify with that sense of being out on the street and feeling unsafe. You know, every woman alive, I think, has lived through those moments. There were a series of protests that uh, followed the death of Sarah Everard and there was a lot of controversy about the policing of those protests. They were very high profile because of the attendance of a large number of women. Kate Middleton from the royal family had laid flowers at one of the protests. How do you feel about the criticism of police? You know, this is, it seems to me, an incredibly complicated area, that kind of policing of protests, particularly in a pandemic. And by some, there was a sort of rush to judgment around the police. How do you weigh all of that up when it's happening, when you're watching the policing of a protest, particularly about something like violence against women? Well, I think, you know, at any time, violence against women is extraordinarily important subject and something that is you know, highly emotive and has been you know throughout my lifetime there's still too much of it it may have changed in its nature you are more at risk as you would know in your own home than you are on the street we've got that kind of online threats and you know when we look at our our sexual assaults they're far more likely to come from somebody that somebody knows than than a stranger hugely more and perhaps I can't prove this, but I I think that probably our streets are safer than they were when I was young. But violence against women and girls still exists and is pernicious and it's not unique to London and it's not unique to the 21st century and it's something we should all be angry about. The week that you describe (laughs) during a pandemic where people are, are, you know, quite frustrated and, you know, having to stay inside, as you said at at the beginning of the program, not able to gather on the streets. That was explicitly not allowed in the law. When you have this terrible set of circumstances that we've just talked about. During International Women's Week, we had a wonderful International Women's Day here in the Met on the Monday. And by the end of the week, we're seeing, as you say, a vigil that turned into a protest uh, rally and very, very high emotions to add to the, to the mix at the same time as a new bill was about to be laid in our parliament about policing and and about policing of protests. So a unique set of circumstances, very high emotion. People may have seen the images of my officers once that peaceful vigil turned into a very large and highly aggressive in parts gathering, which people refused to desist, refused to leave, refused to, to stop gathering, which of course was then, the guidelines have changed, the law has changed, but was then completely not within the law. You'll have seen some images of people, a small number of people being arrested when they refused to leave and or to give their names and addresses and leave. All, with two exceptions, they arrested within, within minutes, actually, or, you know, and no injuries as far as I'm aware, and subsequently a report by the highly independent Inspector of Conservatory saying that actually the Met, in effect, got it pretty much right, proportionate, sensitive, very restrained in in the face of high levels of abuse, rational, well-led, well-commanded by the guys on the the day. But (laughs) tremendously challenging headlines and judgments, social media and media, 
for that 24 hours, which undoubtedly may have affected some people's confidence in their police service. The guys and girls who policed that protest did it very professionally. They were in an invidious position. And policing during the pandemic in, you know, this city has more protests than any other, I suspect, in the world. I may be wrong. We have a massive experience of policing protests. And on any day in normal London, you'll have several and sometimes some big ones. And we kind of pride ourselves in our abilities to work, you know, within the law to balance people's rights, both to gather, to assemble, to, to, to speak out, freedom of speech, and at the same time for them not to interfere too much with other people's rights to get on with their business. Lay on the extra complexity of the uh, coronavirus regulations explicitly not allowing gatherings. And you had a very, very difficult mixture for the public and for the police. And, and we've, we've had a challenging year because of that. And we always knew that we would. People want to gather. They want to be able to celebrate. They want to be able to go to a funeral or a wake. They want to protest. And I can tell you, my officers have got on with their job supporting the national effort to prevent inappropriate, unnecessary transmission through gatherings, for example. But I don't think for one second they have relished closing down funerals because they're too big or stopping protests because they're actually not allowed in the regulations at this time. And they will, like I do, look forward to a time where hopefully we'll be coming well out of the pandemic and we can get on with being a police service that's that isn't telling people how far apart they ought to be standing or whether they should be wearing masks or not, but is is actually dealing with serious crime. I'm going to come now to the kind of standard questions that I always conclude the podcasts with. One of them is to take my guests to a fact. And the fact I want to put to you is really about the cost of policing for police officers. There was a University of Cambridge study that found close to one in five police officers and staff in the UK have symptoms consistent with either post-traumatic stress disorder or what is known as complex PTSD. Are you surprised by figures like that? I think we are all much, much more aware now of the challenges of mental health and well-being right across society. And certainly in this police service, it's something we've been, as I know in the Australian services as well, we've been really prioritising in terms of investment, how we can help our people be more resilient, how we can look after them if they are exposed to, to trauma and stress. And God forbid, if they do actually suffer mental health issues, how we can help them recover most most quickly. And, and we put a lot of money and leadership into that in the last few years. It, it is the case, of course, that policing, by definition, it, it does expose you to seeing things that other members of the public are much less likely to see. Serious injury, death, whether through collision or assault, it exposes you on occasions to things that you may find, or certainly people around you definitely will find extremely frightening. And, and you are the one who has to keep your head and, and show leadership and, and get on with it. I think we have a pretty good record at looking after each other and looking after ourselves here in the Met. But I'm not, I'm not complacent about it at all. I think it's quite hard to know the exact figures. I appreciate this, there is this study. But if you were to look at levels of people who 
have suffered from you know mental health issues of one sort or another across our country, perhaps the same in Australia, I don't know, and definitely during the pandemic. That's pretty high too. So this has to be a focus for us as, as police leaders and as police people that we you know look after ourselves better, we look after each other better, and, and we put in place some really good preventative measures to be able to to react but it's a it's a great job it's a job people love doing it's a job that gives you such satisfactions and such such insights and such friendships such a great kind of community that you're part of so i don't want people to think that it's you know unerringly horribly tough because if you spoke to one of my guys or girls walking past new scotland yard as we speak you know the vast majority of them love it and they're very happy and they wouldn't do anything else that's great to hear. And now I'm going to ask you, what's the worst misogyny you've had to face? <laughs> oh, dear. I'm going to be such a disappointment, Julia. I actually can't think of misogyny I've faced. I've talked about the way in which the world worked when I joined, which seems crazy now. And I can remember some, you know, some female colleagues, women having, you know, really tough time with sexist behaviour that, you know, ground them down. I can remember women colleagues being assaulted sexually both by you know by the public and indeed by colleagues back in the 80s sometimes in a way that is just unthinkable now but I'm I'd love to come up with a pithy misogynistic <laughs> statement I can't I can't think of one I still get frustrated when I see the way women are treated in our society sometimes I really do but I can't I can't think of something that's been directed at me on a happier note, if you had all the power that it's possible to have for a moment, what would you change for women? Oh, without hesitation, I'd say I'd get rid of all violence against women. International Women's Day this year was about, you know, make, you know your kind of pledge. What would you change? I, I did a speech that day in, in, a, in a government department and it's exactly what I said when I was asked then, you know, three weeks ago if we could just wave a magic wand and get get rid of uh, violence against women and girls, so the world would be such a much better place. That's a wonderful vision. Chris, you turned 60 last year and I'm turning 60 this year. So the Virginia Woolf quote I've picked for you says the following. Virginia says, I don't believe in ageing. I believe in forever altering one's aspect to the sun. Dame Cressida Dick says... Well, I love plants. I love nature. I love actually the sun. <laughs> and so I, I do identify with that quote in, in probably in more than one way. But I think as ever, Virginia, who, who didn't live, I think, as long as you and I, Julia, sadly, she had something there. You, each stage in your life, it's, it's worth just recognising what you can now be. And I have to recognise that I'm probably not going to win the Wimbledon Championships, however hard I train. On the other hand, I might be a little bit wiser, a little bit more serene and a little bit clearer about, about you know, who I am and what I want to be now than I was 15 years ago, let alone 35 years ago. So I think that's right. I think it's, it's worth stopping and pausing as, you, as each year goes by or each decade goes by and just, just thinking, what do I want to do? What do I want to do now? What do I want to be? And what do other people want me to be? Well, as the days go by and hopefully we see more sun in London, you and I can think about our aspect towards the sun. But that has been a delightful conversation. Cressida Dick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Julia. Good luck with that sun in London. 
You've been listening to a podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. If you want to learn more about our work, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website and sign up to our updates. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and James Miller with Kings Online with editing by Nick Hilton. If you liked what you've been listening to, we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own.